We're going to finish off uh, Why in the World today. And as we get set for that, I just want to remind you that there are, uh, I guess you saw them as you came in, there's some handouts back there that you can follow along with. There's going to be a couple of uh, more notes today. Um, if you want to follow along with that, you can do that. We're also going to put the notes up on the screen. And if you have your web-enabled smartphone, you can follow along in version. Bottom right corner, there's uh, a spot called More. Click on More, then Events, then Into One, and you can follow along there. And in that way, you'll also have all the announcements. There's an online uh, giving link that's there for you if you'd like to do that. We have envelopes at the back to guarantee that you are tax receipted. If you would like to make a donation back there, they can go in the box. Um, when you uh, have your handout, there's a spot that you can tear off as well that will let us know that you are here if you're visiting with us. And um, you can put your uh, contact information on there so we can make sure our, our records are accurate or that we can get in contact with you. And um, yeah, all that stuff goes into the box at the back. Also, if you have other questions for us about uh, wanting to have somebody pray with you, you have more questions about something, you want to talk about baptism. We're really counting down to that. So if you are interested, it's still not too late. We can, uh, we can still talk to you about that, and we can see if we can move ahead in that way. All right? Through June, if you give through Canada Helps, it automatically enters us into the chance to win $10,000. And that would be fantastic. If you could make sure that we win, I'd really appreciate that. Um, and encourage you, this is not the end, but if you haven't finished reading the Gospel of Mark yet, you still have time. There's no actual time limit on finishing that off. It will be good for you to read. Follow along with what Jesus has done. And, and while you're looking at you're looking for places where you see Jesus, last time we talked about raising the dignity of an individual, elevating that dignity up. Or we see Jesus. And what do we see by the way Jesus acts? What does that teach us about who the Father is and what the Father is like? And Sometimes you say, what? Just God, I just want to see what you're like. And Jesus says, look at me. And so please continue to read the Gospel of Mark. Because God became one of us. He showed up here on earth as a baby. He didn't arrive as a king. And he grew up like a normal person. Even though he was the son of God. We learn a bunch about God. So many intricacies, so many details by considering those steps. What did he want us to see from how he did that? And yeah, let's be honest, we believe that. And for some people, that's just weird. God came to earth, and I can understand why you might think that's weird. So we say it up front, we know it too. Yeah, we, we believe some weird things. It doesn't make them not true, it just makes them weird and hard to get your head around. But we have this assurance, this extra confidence, because one of Jesus' close friends, a guy named John, who was an eyewitness to the whole thing, to everything that went on, what he was asked, what, tell us what it's like. And he wanted people to know how this, how this all came together. This is the way he wrote it in the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verse 14, he said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory Glory as of the one, of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. God came here, camped, moved in, brought his stuff and said, I'm staying with you. That's what we believe. But why? Why in the world would God come to earth? 
That's what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. And so the first week we said, um, Jesus came to earth to communicate and to demonstrate what God is like so that we could see it up close and impersonal. The closer you want to get to the Father, you will get there by going through Jesus. Get close to Jesus, you will understand. Forget about Jesus, you're moving yourself away from God. The next time we said, um, God came, Jesus came to earth to elevate the dignity of the individual. We looked at quite a number of scenarios, a lot of different stories where Jesus went to sick people and to women and to children and to Romans and to servants of Romans, the Pharisees and the outcasts. And everywhere he went, it seemed like he wanted to raise the dignity of the individual, people that for some reason had been considered not as good or not as important. And that honestly makes for a pretty challenging message for most of us because it, it, it doesn't take long for us to think about people that we have difficulty giving dignity to. Maybe it's because of our past. Maybe it's because of how we were raised, what we were taught, internal prejudices that we have. We have a hard time treating everybody with dignity. And that's going to lead us into a challenging place again today. Why in the world did Jesus come to earth? To put religion in its place. Now, please, please make sure that you, you hear what I say here. Religion has a place. Religion plays a really important role in our culture. And I'm not even talking about the Christian religion. I'm just talking about religion in general. Because all of us have questions that we don't have answers for. Religion gives us a context to answer some of those questions that are unanswerable in other ways. What, what happens when we die? Will I ever get to see my father again? Religion is systematic. And we love systematic theology. That's where we try to answer all the questions about God in nice, neat, orderly, easily understood patterns and plans. There's no mystery. And we all need principles to live by. And religious give, religion gives us principles, laws, and rules to live by so we can figure out what to do. We have ethical and moral questions, and religion provides us ethical and moral boundaries. It gives us guidance. Religion brings some certainty into an uncertain world. We have a system that we can rely on that helps us to navigate some of those hard things, even some of the hard things that Jim was talking to us about today. What do we do in this world when things go wrong? Religion helps to uh, move us forward. So religious systems are important. Religion has its place, but Jesus showed up on earth to put religion in its place. Why is that important? Because you know a little bit about history. And if you took a moment and you thought about this, you'd, you'd find that this is true. Whenever religion takes first place, it begins flexing its muscles at the expense of mercy. You think about how this has happened in your own life or people that you've known. You have seen this happen many times. It's every religion. When religion is on the top shelf, when religion is most important, when religion moves into first place, mercy always suffers. Think about phrases that we have associated with religion. Child sacrifice. Honor killings. Holy wars. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. That's what the religious people shouted 
about Jesus. Have you ever just said to yourself, man, I really want to read and know more about the Crusades? Yeah, I know, right? All the time. You're thinking this all the time. And I do enjoy history. I'm going to be honest. I do like these stories. I do like learning about how things unfolded and how they overlapped. So I read, I read history. I like to do that. And I got into some historical novels over time and a, a retelling of these time periods. And um, I like the Crusaders for a while. That was a thing that I was kind of interested in. And every once in a while, they'll make a movie or something that gives you a, a little peek into that world. And it doesn't normally focus on it, but it gives you a peek. And so maybe you saw the kingdom of heaven and you saw that movie and it showed you some of what the Crusades were like. Or maybe you saw National Treasure. And National Treasure even sort of peeks into that world and tries to expand on what the Illuminati is. And then the Da Vinci Code, the, oh, the Da Vinci Code was such a sensation just a while ago, and it tried to deal with some of these issues, the Crusaders and the Knights Templar. And Anyway, it's, it's interesting stuff. I enjoy that. And so you can find and you can read some of the speeches that came out in this time period, um, speeches that were given to inspire the Crusades, to call people out, to bring them out. Pope Urban II, he was uh, kind of famous for making a number of these in 1095. Um, so I just want to give you part of his motivational speech part of that recruitment speech to say, come on, let's all get riled up and go join the Crusades. This is what he said. And you can find this stuff. It's not difficult to find. It's not hidden just in scholarly works. You can come across this stuff. On this account, I, or rather the Lord. I've never written something like that, but I think that's a good way to start. It's very authoritative. On this account, I, or rather the Lord, beseech you as Christ's herald to publish this everywhere to persuade all people of whatever rank whether they be foot soldier or knights, the poor and rich, to carry aid promptly to those Christians and to destroy that vile race from the lands of our friends. Pope Urban II. Basically what he's calling for at that time was an ethnic cleansing. We're going to get rid of an entire race of people. And it goes on. There's more. It goes on. He says, moreover, Christ commands it. Now, if you know anything about this time period, if you've, you've seen anything, you've heard those stories, you know what those banners said that they carried into battle. You know what the cries of the troops were as they engaged. You know how they pumped each other up when they talked to each other. They'd look in the face and they'd kind of get wound up and they'd say, God wills it. God wills it. And that battle cry that they gave off probably came from statements just like this. Moreover, Christ commands it. All who die by the way, that means on the way. You don't even have to get there. All who die by the way, whether by land or by sea, or in battle against the pagans, shall have immediate remission of sins. Now, I'm telling you, they all perked up at this. Blah, 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 blah. Immediate remission of sins? Sweet! I could totally use some of that. Because the noblemen, the lords, the merchants, the wealthy, they knew their lives were full of sin. And every time they went to church, the church sermons were predominantly about hell and punishment and fire. And this was a great fundraising tool. We've got some renovations coming up. I just thought maybe we could do an entire year of hellfire and punishment sermons and see if we can't get that debt paid off right away. Well, what they were doing, 
it had become an established practice to fundraise for things. They were offering people a way to buy themselves out of hell, out of fire, out of death, out of purgatory. And there was an obsession with the afterlife. This life really paled in significance compared to the afterlife. And now the Pope says, if you go on crusade, you have not when you get there. Not if you're successful. You just sign up and go on crusade and you have immediate remission of sin. It is now possible to have your cake and eat it too. You can sin your way all the way to your last day. And when you're on crusade, you go to heaven and all your sins are erased. So I'm telling you, they signed up like you wouldn't believe. And then go read about it yourself. It's all there. Check this stuff out. Then they sinned their way from France, from Germany, from other countries that are in Europe. They send, them, they send themselves all the way to Constantinople. They get to Constantinople and bam, they almost destroy the city. As they go, they murder hundreds and thousands of Jews. They just tacked Jews on to the other plan, right? We were going for Muslims, but let's go for the Jews as well. Until they finally got to the river and they crossed into the Holy Land. And from there, they murdered all the way down to Jerusalem. Anyone and anything they could find. Pillage, steal, kill, whatever. All the time thinking in their head. Hey, we can do whatever we want. I'm on crusade. My sins have been absolved. I'm going to heaven no matter what I do. All this done in the name of Jesus. This is religion. And not just Christian religion. Any religion, when it becomes the priority, when religion becomes first place, mercy always suffers. Next problem. Religion collapses under the weight of the real world. Real life doesn't work like religion says it does. The three points, they don't work like the preacher said they would. He said it was going to be this, then this, then this, and it wasn't. It was all mashed together. It wasn't clear. It wasn't obvious what God wanted me to do. But when the pastor guy talks about it, it all seems like it's so easy and it all makes sense. And I'll never doubt and I'll never question and I'll never struggle if I just religion well. But real life is unsystematic. It's inconsistent. It's random. And if you've lived for 10 minutes on this earth, you know that it's messy. Things don't go the way that we want. Things don't go the way that we hope. Things don't go the way that we plan. When religion is in first place, leaders become self-righteous. And followers become hypocrites. This is just the way religion works. Understand, I'm indicting myself in here. I am not indicting others. It is more fingers pointed at me than at you. When religion is number one, this is just what happens. Leaders dumb down the rules. We try to make it clear for you what you need to do. And that's whether it's Islam or Judaism or Christianity. List all the other religions you have. The leaders dumb down the rules so that they can sort of live this thing out and be hitting basically an A. Maybe an A minus sometimes, maybe an A plus, but they want to hit an A. So they pick rules, they emphasize rules that they can do, that they're good with. 
And then they become all about the rules. Let me tell you what you need to do. Let me tell you what you have to do. You must. You always. You never. And so they become self-righteous. And they become angry about the rules. We're not following the rules. And that's why we talked last week about being self-righteous. Just to set you up for this. There's a co-relationship between self-righteous and angry. And when religion takes first place, you will get mad, self-righteous leaders. We hear them. They get the mic. They're on TV. They're sound-biting. No matter what religion it is, those are the ones that get the publicity. And the followers try to pretend like they're following the rules, but they're not. They can't. So everybody's a hypocrite. So yes, churches are full of hypocrites. All religious gatherings are full of hypocrites when religion takes first place. And when you read Matthew and Mark, because I already know you're reading Mark, Luke and John, here's what you're going to see. Jesus was in constant conflict, always with these religious leaders over exactly what we're talking about right now. So here's what happens. Jesus and the religious leaders believe in the law of Moses. They believe that it was important. And then Jesus and the religious leaders, they believe that people were important. They both shared those key values. What they argued over was how do you prioritize these values? Some days you prioritize one over the other. Some days the other way around. Jesus and the religious leaders were in constant debate, not over is the law important, not over should we keep the Ten Commandments, None of that. Everybody believed that was true. The conflict was over which was most important, which was first place. And Jesus consistently, over his ministry from beginning to end, prioritized people over his own religion. And he's the Son of God. He prioritized people over his own religion, over his own customs, and over his own traditions. And the Pharisees, they just couldn't get it. You claim to be from God? You claim to be a rabbi, and yet you... And Jesus would consistently say, don't mess with the law of Moses. Don't try and change the law of Moses. That is sacred. Anyone who tries to take away from that is the least in the kingdom. And then at the same time, Jesus would come along and seem to disregard the law for some poor soul or somebody in need, and the Pharisees just couldn't get it. So finally, one day, Jesus clarifies it. And it's not, it's really hard to miss. No, it's really hard not to miss. You just glance right over this really easily. We don't pay attention. But it's a staggeringly significant statement that Jesus made. The area that bothered the Pharisees and religious leaders the most was what Jesus would do on the Sabbath. Because you were supposed to keep the Sabbath holy, right? And over time, the Pharisees and religious leaders had come up with a whole bunch of customs, a whole bunch of traditions through which to interpret what you could do and what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. Jesus would heal people on the Sabbath. How dare you? Couldn't you just wait eight hours to heal that guy? So Jesus heals on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees would go, oh, What are you doing? You're healing on the Sabbath again. What's wrong with you? Here's a quick fact check for Pharisees. <coughs> you go through the entire Old Testament, you won't find no mention whatsoever about healing on the Sabbath. 
None. It's never mentioned. It's not in the law. But they had added a ton of extra laws, extra practices, extra ways to be super holy, and they now viewed this as work. No work on the Sabbath. So they were constantly butting heads with Jesus because of what he did on the Sabbath. Clearly, you're breaking the law. Clearly, you're disregarding Moses and what Moses taught us. Clearly, you're out of sync with God's will. And so finally, Jesus had enough. And one day, his whole disciple crew, they're just rolling down the street, and they're going somewhere with a crowd following them. Because everywhere that Jesus went, there was a crowd that was following him. And part of that crowd was always religious leaders. Some of them kind of just, you know, checking out, getting the lay of the land. They know what's, the, what's going on. Maybe he's right, maybe he's not. Some of them looking to say, that guy's wrong. We're going to catch him. We're going to catch him doing something wrong, and we're going to get rid of him. So the apostles are walking by, and they go to this nearby wheat field, and they begin to break off the top of the wheat, and they eat it. This was clearly a, uh, a pre-gluten-free diet craze era. They just thought they would do that, but they were just having a snack. As we go, we're just going to snack. And, but it's the, it's the Sabbath. And so there's Pharisees in the group, and they say, oh, now that is it. Will you do nothing? Your followers are harvesting on the Sabbath, for pity's sake. And Jesus shakes his head and he goes, they're not harvesting. And the Pharisees say, well, symbolically, they are doing work things. That's work. It's on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, what? Really? Are you serious? You should read this whole story later today. It's a good story. You should follow it up. Mark chapter 2. We're going to go to chapter 2, verse 24. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? So Jesus knows that they think King David's awesome because David, Abraham, Moses, all rock stars. You don't say bad stuff about them. They were the good guys in the Old Testament. Everybody thinks they're great. So he reminds them of a story where David, ate, David and his followers ate something that they shouldn't have eaten on a day that they shouldn't have eaten it. And he says, so uh, are you saying David was wrong? You're not saying that, are you? And this, then comes this big statement, this huge thing that makes Christianity messy and wonderful at the same time. And verse 27, then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Bum, bum, bum. It's not like God had all these rules and said to the other guys in the Trinity, hey, I've got these sweet, great laws. You know what I need to do? I need to create some people to keep them. What else am I going to do with all these laws if there's no one to keep them? And Jesus says, fellas, you got it all backwards. The law is important. People are important. But God didn't create the law and then create some people. God created people, then created the law for them, to help them, to guide them, to teach them. The law is for people. The people are not for the law. And if you're a parent, you understand this completely. Parents don't have children so that there will be someone there to pick up the toys. Right? It makes no sense at all. Great parents set rules. And then when they think it's appropriate and timely, and in the best interest of their children, they break their own rules. Bedtime is at 8.30 every night. But tonight, you can stay up to watch the fireworks. You go to school every day. It's a rule. 
But tomorrow, I'm going to take you to the zoo instead. Great parents decide that their children are more important than the laws that the parents set. But all things being equal, we follow the rules. The parents that won't do that create an incredibly orderly home that everyone can't wait to leave. And God is a perfect heavenly father. He did not create people for the law. He created the law for people. But it cuts both ways. He also says to us, the same thing that we might say to our kids. You are, well, we say this to our kids in this way. You are more important to me than my promise. So if I said something or I promised something and then I find out it's not a good idea, I'm not going to let my promise to you stand in the way of me keeping you safe. I said that you could go to that place. And then I checked into that place. Now you are not going to that place. You are more important to me than something I said before I had all the facts. Sometimes I break my rules and you're happy. Sometimes I break my rules and you are angry with me. But do you know what's common in both of these scenarios? You. And my love for you. Because you are important to me. And that's what our Heavenly Father does. This makes all of us religious people really nervous. We don't know what to do. It should make us nervous. Jesus said, I've come to put religion in its place. And it's not first place. It's second place. When Jesus taught this about the law, it wasn't a new idea. He wasn't groundbreaking on this. You know this, don't you? You've read some of the Old Testament. You know some of the stories that are there. One really common theme. The nation of Israel would get all wound up. And they would start using the law of God against the people of God. And they would mistreat people. And then they would go to the temple and they would make a sacrifice. Because God, God said, if you do this and you disobey the law, then you got to do this thing to make it all right again. And so they just got into the habit of breaking the laws. Treating people terribly and then just making a sacrifice. They were buying sacrifices in bulk at Costco just to keep the costs down and efficiency up. It's like Catholics who have made a habit of going to confession. I'll do what I want and go to confession. It's like Protestants who whip out 1 John 1, 9 and says, he's going to forgive me. He's got to forgive me. Ha, ha, ha. We've loopholed God. There's no way he can get around this. We can do whatever we want and we can have peace with God if we just use God's word against him. And every once in a while, a prophet would show up in Israel and say, enough of that. You think you can just keep making sacrifices and that's going to make God happy? God is sick of your worthless sacrifices. But wait a minute, God told us to make the sacrifices. No. No, 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 that's not what happened. That is not true. God told you to treat people well. The sacrifice only came as an exception. A sacrifice was to reflect your repentant heart, not to replace your repentant heart. You made sacrifice the rule. You mistreat, pe you mistreat people thoughtlessly and selfishly, and you just throw another burger on the grill, whatever, I'm in the clear. God's happy with it. And the prophets would say, no. No, he's not. 
Check out Isaiah when he says this. Isaiah chapter 1, starting at verse 11. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? says the Lord. I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. But hold on a second. You're the one who set the rules. You're the one who told us to kill all these animals when we sin. Sin was supposed to be the exception to the rule, not the rule. You think you're tricking me or pulling one over on me? Do you think I don't see what's going on? Do you think I'm naive? Do you think it's okay to treat me with this level of ongoing systemic disrespect? I'm God. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. You know what that means for some of us? Some of us adjust our attendance, Bible reading, giving patterns when we feel guilty. I went on a bender again. Better get churched up. Hey God, I'm in church. Bet you like that, don't you? And God says, that's detestable. You think I don't catch on? I don't give you rules and laws. I don't ping your conscience just because I want you to obey. I love you. And you, you're screwing up your life. You're trying to use church attendance or reading my Bible or giving money somehow to appease me. The goal isn't to pay me off. The goal is to live a life honoring to you. And by that same time, it becomes honoring to me. Don't go to a church to appease your conscience. It's just a waste of everyone's time. I want you to submit to me because I love you. I am not in love with my rules. I'm not in love with the Bible. I'm not in love with morality. I'm in love with you. Stop bringing me worthless offerings. In 15, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you may offer many prayers, I'm not listening. God says, no loopholes. I'm not religious. I just love you. I know your heart. And I love you. I didn't, I didn't create people so you could follow my laws. I didn't create animals so that you could kill them for a religious system. I didn't create you so that you could fill up seats in a church. 17, learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And stop bringing me all these dead animals. That was the exception. Stop ignoring the rule. It was supposed to represent the cost, the weight of sin. It was not a free, sinning, lifelong payment plan. So that was the Old Testament. Now it's the New Testament. Jesus came along, and he kept getting mixed up with the Sadducees. The Sadducees were more of the uh, establishment. They were the conservative ruling power, tended to be more wealthy, more influential landowners. And Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That's one of the things that defined them. And that's one of the things that made them sad, you see. 
See what I just did there? They thought that when you died, it's all over. You're here for the pleasure of God. And when your life is over, God has had all the pleasure he's going to get out of you. And you're gone. You're done. That's it. Actually, that's what most people in Jesus' day believed. Some people also had the view of some reincarnation in there. But the, the way that we think, this eternal life idea, very rare. So the Sadducees tried to trick Jesus on lots of occasions. And it never worked out. That's just one more reason why they were sad, you see. Yeah, you got it. So one day the Sadducees come up to Jesus and they try to appear like a sincere student. So Jesus, tell us, of all the laws of Moses, which is the most important one? Now they had an answer. And they were looking to do with his answer, no matter what he said, they were going to use his answer against him. They wanted to see how he lined up with what their teaching was. So we'll jump into this. Matthew chapter 22, starting at verse 37. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. To which all the religious leaders said, That's awesome! Because nobody can see my heart, and nobody can see my soul, and nobody can see my mind. I can convince myself and you that I'm in sync with God. I can convince myself that I'm keeping the greatest commandment. I'm a commandment keeper. Clearly, I love God. But before they could finish that thought, Jesus continued and he said, and the second is like it. When you say it is like it, that means, um, hey, hold on a second. I only asked about the first, Jesus, just the first commandment. And he says, yeah, well, it's the greatest commandment. And the greatest commandment has two parts. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, and the second is like it. And like it means equal to. It defines. Uh, it comments on. It clarifies. It makes the first one measurable. It prevents you from coming up with loopholes. It keeps you from simply being a religious person who comes up and does religious things while ignoring what's most important to the heart of God. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now I know whether I'm actually doing that. Then Jesus goes on and he makes another huge statement that's really easy. Again, just to truck right on over. In uh, verse 40, he says, all the law. And that word all in the Greek and in the Aramaic and in the Hebrew, it means all. That word means all. It refers to all. It actually means all. All the law. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That's the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament flows from this. If you've ever wondered what the Old Testament and the law of Moses was all about, it was all commentary on. It was all defining how. It all points to these two things. These two things. Love God. Love your neighbor. What's the story of Jonah about? Ultimately, it's about loving God. And loving your neighbor. What's Malachi about? I don't even know if I've read Malachi. What's that one? Ultimately, it's about loving God and loving your neighbor. So the quick Jesus summary. If you read any of the Old Testament and you come to a different conclusion than love God and love your neighbor, you read it wrong. It's okay. Go back and read it again. If you read any part of the Old Testament and you interpret it, to mean anything other than love God and love your neighbor, then you interpreted it wrong. 
It's okay. Go back and read it again. If you give yourself credit for being a religious person because of what you read here, and yet you don't do these things, you're living wrong. Invisible religion is what I prefer. It's just a matter of the heart. I know you like that one better too, right? That's why Jesus said the second is like it. If that's what Jesus believed and that's what Jesus taught, then it means that everything Jesus taught and everything that the people after Jesus taught hangs on these two things as well. So when, when Paul, Paul said a lot of things that are confusing, right? So what did Paul really mean when he said? He meant love God and love your neighbor. Peter, Peter, he wrote a bunch of stuff too. What did Peter really mean when he said? Well, what he really meant was love God and love your neighbor. That's what it summarizes to. That's what it comes down to. But what about that place where it says, wives, submit to your husbands? <laughs> what is that all about? It's about love God and love your neighbor. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. It's about love God, love your neighbor. Religion can complicate things. Longer lists, bigger words. But that's not what Jesus was doing. He was simplifying and super simplifying the entire Old Testament. The entire New Testament, all 66 books, hangs on these two things. Clings to, is balanced by, they're necessary. You must understand them in light of this. What are those two things? Love God. Love your neighbor. When you don't know what to do, simply do what love requires of you. The Bible just doesn't seem clear about this. I'm not sure what to do. Simply do what love requires of you. It's still too tricky. Can't figure that out. Try this one out. When in doubt, help a brother out. Religion has a place. Second place. Jesus never allowed theology to get in the way of ministry. Jesus never used theology to mistreat a person. And Jesus never said, I'd really like to help you out, but here's what I believe. I want to help you, but the Bible says, I want to help you, but I can't because I'm a Christian. Jesus' conscience was informed by compassion rather than consistency. What helped Jesus to decide where to go and what to do? Compassion. Consistency is easy because it means I can turn off my head and I can turn off my heart and I can just do the same thing every time. But that is not what we are called to be. We are called to be nudged and guided and prompted by the Holy Spirit. And the overarching symptom of our lives should be love expressed through compassion and mercy. Religion loves whenever and always. Jesus' answer is, what would love require of me in this particular unique situation? So love demands inconsistency. Every parent knows this. Kids are not the same. Situations are never really the same. So say this to yourself and then say it out loud. You are more important to me than my view.
Say that out loud. You are more important to me than my view. And I have a view. I have a belief. I have an opinion. I have a conviction. But don't allow a view to supersede a you. What do we do? How far do you go with that? How extreme do we have to get? Where will that take us? How does this end up? How will I manage this situation? We'll never know in advance. Why? Because this is what Jesus is all about. The nudging, the prompting. Jesus didn't die for precepts and principles. Jesus died for people. Jesus didn't die for the law. Jesus died for lawbreakers. Jesus didn't die for a set of rules. Jesus died for rule breakers. Jesus didn't even die for sin. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus didn't die for a view. Jesus died for you. Jesus came to put religion in its place. Second place. Behind you. Behind me. God's view of you was defined and determined by Jesus' view of you from a bloody Roman cross. Do you know what is most important to God? Not his law. It's you. Why in the world did Jesus come as one of us to put religion, all religion, in its place, right behind what was most important? You. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, thank you for agreeing to come, knowing what my heart is like. You chose to love us. You chose to say, I'm with them. Chosen. Dearly loved, that's what you call us, and you know us. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know our sin, you know our failings, you need, you know our fallings and our self-righteousness and our pride and our anger. You know it all, and you love us, and you call us forward into relationship and partnership with you, Lord Jesus Thank you for what you have done. Give me the ability to use my life in such a way that your kingdom would come on this earth just like it does in heaven. Use me in partnership to make a difference in Stouffville, in York Region, and the world. Speak to me in such a way that you would use me even within my own family. Not just outside, but inside too. Change me. Heal me. Deliver me. Don't give up on me. For these things we trust you. For you have said you will never leave us. And you will never forsake us. So glad to be in contact with you. Take me forward this day. Take my friends forward in this day knowing that they are loved and deeply cared for because that's what you came to earth to show us in so many different ways. Thanks. Amen. God bless you.
and keep you. God, smile on you and gift you. God, look you full in the face and make you prosper and give you peace. Be blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. It's better when you're here. It's better when we're together. So thanks for being with us again today. It was great. Church homework. 